Good morning, everybody. I'm Daniel, and uh, let's pray. Father, we come to you and just, again, want to acknowledge the fact that we are completely dependent on you. And there's a lot of things I know that I take for granted uh, a lot of times, even just my ability to, to think or to hear something and comprehend it. Um, but we just take a moment to recognize that even those things that seem to be natural are also gifts from you. Um, and so we just come to you and ask that you would move in a powerful way in our hearts through your word and that we would just be made aware of um, the unique things that you want to teach each one of us. Thank you that you uh, meet with us individually in a collective way. Um, and it's really, really cool. So we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was just screaming at my mom, like unleashing on my mom. I was standing on this side of the table. She was standing on that, that side of the table. And I don't even remember what it was about. But one of my earliest memories, I was probably four years old. And it's my earliest memory of feeling like absolute genuine rage. I was so upset. And again, I don't remember what we were arguing about. Um, but it was probably something really easy, like, hey, can you pick that thing up or something like that? And I was just losing it. So mad, like literally enraged. And I was so, I, it just got to such a boiling point that I grabbed a book off of the table. And it's one of those like little kid books that is like that big, that thin. So it's real aerodynamic. And I just chucked it as hard as I could at my mom. And she was holding my little sister, Bethany, who was not even one year old at the time. And it hit her right in the face, right underneath her eye. And as I was preparing for this week, God brought that story back to mind. And again, it's one of my earliest memories. Um, and as I was preparing and reading through this passage, this is what he brought to mind. And so I want to um, hopefully help us find our place in this story as we read through the, this parable that Jesus is going to tell this morning in Luke chapter 20. So we're going to turn there, verses uh, 9, and we're going to go through kind of the first part of verse 15. And so again, if, you, if you've got your Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. You can gr always grab those. Um, and it's also going to be on the screen to read along. So here we go. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may become ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
So I want us just to take a moment and remember where we're at as Jesus is sharing this parable. So he has just come, he's been doing a lot of ministry um, in kind of the Galilee region and he's just come back to Jerusalem. And this is kind of the main place where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which are the main people that don't like Jesus, this is like their stomping grounds. And so he's kind of headed intentionally into trouble. And what we'll see through the rest of the book of Luke is there's just increasing tension. And so that's one of the difficulties in the way that we kind of break it up and take it chunk to chunk is sometimes we forget about the tension that existed where we just were. But basically Jesus is like calling out the Pharisees. He just like cleared out the temple. Now he's calling out the Pharisees right there in their own house, basically. And he tells this parable that really takes us back to Genesis, And essentially what Jesus does is gives us like a very short biblical history lesson. And I love the way that Jesus does this because he knows the human heart really well and he knows the power of a well-timed and well-told story that it just grabs you differently, right? Then Jesus like, all right, everybody sit down and I'm going to take you, we're now going to do biblical history 101. He just tells this story that takes us back through Back to Genesis, when God creates everything, right? This, in the parable, a master plants, plants a vineyard. Genesis, God creates the earth and creates a garden. And so there's kind of this just understanding right out of the gate that this is, you know, the world is God's world. He made everything. It all belongs to him and he's God. And so that's what Jesus is kind of pointing us towards. And then God puts stewards over his world. Not people who own his world, people who are there to steward it in the way that he has called them to steward. So again, God creates humans and we're still in Genesis, right? Well, then he kind of jumps forward and he says, hey, so the, the master of the, the vineyard is like, hey, all right, it's, it's, it's harvest time. Time to send me some of the profit from, from the vineyard or whatever. Just a normal thing. And what we see is that these stewards or these tenants have gotten a little comfortable. They've come into this place of like, Look what we've done. Look at this vineyard. It's basically ours. And, you know, in fact, I know you just want some of the proceeds and that's like a normal thing, but I don't think we're going to do that this time. And so they beat up the servant and send him back empty handed. Right? So the master sends another one and another one. And basically Jesus is based like in those few sentences is just like, and this is what has happened throughout all of biblical history through the prophets, that God is, would send his messengers. People are like, we don't like that. And then that's that. So it, it's this building tension, even in this story, and it's been this building tension throughout all of human history. And there's this moment of decision where the master says, I'm gonna send my beloved son. Now, again, from our lens, it's like pretty obvious. Like if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably know like, okay, it's probably about Jesus. <laughs> and yes, you're exactly right. And in fact, as you look at that, I mean, you look at that phrase, I will send my beloved son. It's like a hyperlink to, to John three sixteen, like the best known verse in the Bible for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And so Jesus is just evoking all of this stuff in just a few sentences. 
And as he tells this story, again, he's telling this to these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, and it's not just a story, is it? Like, as we read it, we know he's not just telling this random story that has no point. Like, oh, you guys, I just was thinking about this the other day. I got this idea for this new book that I was going to write. And it's like, no, he's talking about these guys. (laughs) And in fact, if we look a little deeper, he's talking about me and you. Because Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, the guys who want to get rid of him, And we often feel the same thing that the Pharisees have felt. And it's the same thing that I felt at four years old. (laughs) When I was yelling at my mom, who are you to assert any authority over my life? I have my plan. I know what I want to do. And what you're telling me to do is not part of my plan. Who are you to tell me what I can do? And it's, and ultimately, what is that feeling? It is rage. That is what these teachers of the law are feeling. And this is what many of us feel when we come face to face with God. Rage. Rage that God would dare to be God and tell me what to do. Rage that God would dare to ask me for something that I am determined is mine. And so we just raise a book and we let it rip. And we try to kill God. In fact, I think that is the goal of fallen humanity is to kill God. It's just this cycle that you see over and over and over again. And again, if we think about what happens in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter three, we have not made it very far into the Bible and things get bad real quickly. Adam and Eve, the people who God had put in his world to steward in his way, think, you know what? I think we should decide what's right and wrong. I think we should be the ones deciding what's up and what's down, what's good and what's bad, right? And then Cain and Abel, their kids. Cain, God did not accept Cain's offering, but he loved Abel's offering. And so Cain, rather than saying, all right, God, what do you want? Like, what do, how do I need to adjust? He's like, no, actually, I'm just going to kill Abel, and then I'm the only option. So then it will just be the best offering. <laughs> and so again, you see this rage. Or, or, I mean, then you fast forward a little bit. Israel is in captivity in Egypt. Moses comes and says, God's like, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, actually, I am the owner of this vineyard. Who are you to ask me for anything? And so God just is God and there's plagues that happen. And so finally Pharaoh's like, this is so uncomfortable. Fine, just go. And he, as soon as he gets a little bit of space though, a little bit of like, okay, no more plagues. Then he's like, okay, now I'm going to go get those people back. (laughs) I made a bad decision. Now that I feel a little comfortable again, I think I'm God again. And I mean, again, you and I can look at our own life (laughs) and see moments where it's like, no, no, God, not that, not there, not that way. I don't want to do it that way. So how does Jesus then respond to our rage and our desire to be God and our desire for control? How does Jesus respond He came to die. 
That's Jesus' response. Which is mind-boggling, right? That's, it's just, it, like, it, that, okay, if it was me, that would not be my first idea, right? Because again, think about me at four years old, like, I'm just having a total meltdown, and that's one of those moments as a parent where you're like, oh my goodness, I have failed. How did I allow my child to become demon-possessed? <laughs> And now the reality is I did not need to be demon possessed. I had enough going on just in my own self to do that, right? But it's like, those are freaky moments as a parent and you get this like rage. Nobody had to teach me how to do that. I wanted to do that. And that, so our first inclination though is like, okay, you're gonna come on strong. I'm gonna come on strong, you know? I'm the dad, I'm the mom, I'm going to tell you, blah, 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 right? And that, that's good. That works. That works. But how does Jesus respond, though? And this is this the most crazy, subversive thing. That it's actually, he comes through our desire for control, through our desire to ultimately to kill him, to get rid of him. That is exactly how he comes and he accomplishes our salvation. It's incredible. It's incredible. And, he, and at this moment when he's, when he's telling this parable, he's like prophesying about what they're going to do to him. And at the same time, he's like hardening their hearts to do it. And in the Bible, there's this theme of hardening hearts. And it's part of, even if you, if you read about it, it's like part of Jesus's ministry was to both to come and save people, but also to harden hearts. And it's kind of a confusing thing a little bit, but I think the thing that makes it most clear is that ultimately when you come face to face with God, and I mean, we can, here's the thing that, here's the, the, like the place where we as humans like to sit. We like to sit in what I like to call kind of like agnostic land. Okay, and this is no, no offense to anybody who maybe considers himself agnostic, but I just say it's a very comfortable place to be. Because it's like, you know, there's pr- maybe there's something out there I just don't really know and I don't think we can know. But the Bible says that a fool says in their heart, there is no God. Or just, I don't think I really need to deal with that. But here's the thing, is that if there is a God, you can only ignore him for so long. Eventually, he's, you're going to be face to face and you've got to make a decision. I can either say, wow, you are God and I'm not, or I can just dig in, dig my heels in and say, no, you will not be God. I will not submit. I, and so this is, the, this is what happens when you come face to face with Jesus. You can just sort of like leave Jesus and like, oh yeah, Jesus was nice. No problems with Jesus. But when you start to see Jesus, if you like read the Bible... <laughs> And see the stuff that Jesus says about himself. It's like, ah, oh, man, I have to actually make a decision now. Because Jesus says that he's God. Jesus says that he has every right to tell me how to live my life. And so I can submit to that. Or I can dig in and decide I need to kill this guy. And so the amazing thing about Jesus is he comes through that. Through our desire for control, through our desire to kill God, he's like, all right, you want to kill me? Let the book fly. 
I'll take it. And in fact, Jesus says the incredible, makes these incredible statements like, hey, nobody actually takes my life from me, right? Jesus wasn't murdered. He's like, I lay my life down willingly. This is my choice. And what we even see here is as he's prophesying his death, he's actually hardening the hearts of the people who are going to do it. He's pushing all their buttons. And so it just, as I read this, I'm just like, man, Jesus is unstoppable. There is nothing that I could do to stop him. God is going to do exactly what he wants to do every time. And I, I just, so even just in this moment, I invite you to like think about what is a complicated or hard situation in your life? What is that place in your life where you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. Or maybe it's just things going on in the world. I mean, we got plenty of complicated stuff going on in the world, right? What comes to mind? Well, here's the reality is that I think your heart is a lot harder and more complicated. <laughs> and God is well able to take care of that. The stuff we see in the world, it's just an overflow of what's going on in here. But Jesus gets right at our heart and there's just nothing that stops him. It is amazing. So as we get back to the, the second part of this passage, I just want us to again remember and imagine what everybody's feeling at this point because there is palpable tension. They, I mean, these guys hate Jesus and it's evident. And so just imagine being one of Jesus' disciples, like standing there, like, you're like watching Jesus, like, are you, uh, yeah. You know, he's like, you're just really sweaty <laughs> at this point. And so let's keep reading what Jesus said. So, and again, like at this point in the story, the, the, the tenants have just killed the, the beloved son. And so Jesus then goes into this, this second part of verse 15 and asks the question that everybody is asking, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Is this just going to go free for all? Like, ah, rats. I guess I got to go to plan B, C, D, you know. Jesus says, no, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Again, these guys know that Jesus is talking to them. But he looked directly at them. Okay, just in case it wasn't obvious, right? He looked directly at them. Jesus is so tenacious and fearless, okay? He looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's out of Psalm 118. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus just drops this hammer on these guys. And this is just the reality is it's like, there, you, can, you can want to kill God. It just never works. And the way the, the Bible talks about when you come face to face with God, it, it says it's a fearful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Man, it's easy when I was just like, yeah, I feel real comfortable here in this vineyard. But when that master comes, 
Nobody's laughing anymore. And it's just wacky. I mean, these guys, like in this parable, it's like this master literally hired like psychopaths. These guys are not in touch with reality because they're like, let's kill the heir and then everything, then we'll be the new heirs. It's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> just, just in case you were wondering, like that was not the legal system of the day, okay? Like nobody is like, ah, oh, man, it really stinks. You killed that person, but eh, here's all their stuff. It doesn't work that way. These guys are completely out of touch with reality. And it's the same thing with us when we think that we could stand up against God, that we could somehow assert our will above his. It just doesn't work. It can't happen. And what Jesus is saying here as he talks about um, the master returning, Jesus is coming again. It's one, of, it's one of our grace anchors here, right? That he is coming back. And it's something that we encourage one another with and we should because it's one of those things like it's amazing, it's hopeful because we know like the way that we experience the world right now, it's messed up. It stinks. There's pain. There's things that are just unjust and not right. And we know that Jesus is coming back and he says, behold, I make all things new. He says he will wipe every tear. It's like, it's all going to be made right. So it's a hopeful thing. But at the same time, it's terrifying because we're the ones who made it bad. And this is the mind-boggling thing about the gospel. I mean, there's a lot of mind-boggling things. One of the things that just, I, like, I, under, I, I understand the facts of the gospel, but I put myself in the position of like, man, if I was God and I had to figure out how to deal with that situation. Now, again, God is not ever trying to figure stuff out. He just knows. <laughs> but if I was trying to figure out how to deal with the situation, how does God relate to people who are at the same time, both victims and perpetrators. We don't have a box for that because all of us have directly sinned against God and against one another. We're all perpetrators. And at the same time, we're all victims and experience being sinned against. We experience the negative effects of sin in our world. And it stinks. So we want forgiveness for our sin, but we also want justice for the sin that's been done. What is God to do? <laughs> that is a complicated situation. How do you give forgiveness and justice? See, and we all, like, we all have a different place that we would draw the line. Like, okay, maybe God, like, people who have been, like, this good or maybe not done these particular things, why don't you just say, you guys are good, and then everybody else, like, they should just, you know, then they can get the judgment. But usually, where do we draw the line? Like at ourself, right? Everybody over there, like I just squeak by. I know I'm not perfect, but like I'm not Hitler, you know? It's like, the, I don't know why everybody compares themselves to Hitler. I mean, I suppose you feel real good about yourself if it's like, oh, I'm not Hitler. Yeah, well, I hope not, you know? 
Um, good for you. <laughs> uh, a lot of people weren't Hitler. <laughs> but the reality is, is God is the one who gets to draw the line. And what scripture says is that we all fall short. There's not one of us that meets the standard that God has set. Why? Because we don't want to. What is the standard that God has set? If I could boil it down for you, it's that he is God and I am not. And we don't like that. In fact, that enrages us, if we're honest. I mean, even for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, if, it's, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, there have been moments where you have been tearfully yelling at God. I have because there are things in my life that I just want to have control over. There are things in my life that I want to choose. My will be done, not yours. So how does God deal with people who want forgiveness and justice? And if he can't offend his character, he is a God of love and justice. Part of his love is the fact that he's a God of justice. That he doesn't just let wrongdoing go unpunished. So what does he do? The answer is on the cross. The forgiveness in God and, and justice of God perfectly meeting in the person of Jesus. Because I've got things that I've done that it's like, God, could you just like overlook that? But by the way, I've got a long list of people who I think you should look into. But the reality is, is I'm probably on people's list too. Some of you in this room are like, yeah, he's on my list. <laughs> but in Jesus, we all find ourselves at the foot of the cross. Where we, where we say, hey, but that person said this about me. That person lied to me. That person broke their promise. That person abused. That person manipulated. Jesus says, no, I'm taking that one. The punishment for that, that's on me. It's not going unpunished. He took it on himself. This is why Jesus says so many strong things about forgiveness. And I mean, we've already been there through Luke. It's like, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no room for unforgiveness. Because if Jesus has forgiven my sins, I have no right to hold that over somebody else. Now, I'm not saying that's easy, and that's not even th what this message is about. So we're going to move on. <laughs> but it's on the cross that we find this perfect melding of God's love and forgiveness and his justice. And so that's where we find ourselves all together is at the foot of the cross. And just the last thing I want us to kind of camp on and then hopefully kind of take with us into the week as just something to meditate on. This is out of Proverbs 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. And Proverbs is just this big book of a lot of wisdom sayings. And one of the very first things that is said in Proverbs is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if you want to know how to make good decisions, if you want to know how to live rightly in the world, 
it starts with understanding. And again, this, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not like jump scare, like, ah, you know, like he comes out from around the corner and ah, you know, there's God. It means that I know that God is God and I am not. And I don't want to stand opposed to God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. I do not want to find myself opposing God's will because that does not end well. <laughs> that's what the fear of the Lord is. And so that's what Proverbs says. It's like, that's where it starts. If you want to make any good decisions about your life, that's the first thing that you have to understand is that God is God and you are not. And then we can build off of that. And so after I hit my sister in the face with a book, in that moment, and again, it's so funny, like four years old, I don't have a lot of memories from being this young. I have some, um, but as one of my earliest memories, I just, it, it's so clear. I hit my sister with a book, a book that was intended for my mom. <laughs> I don't know if I would have felt bad if it hit my mom, honestly, but it hit my sister. Little, like, I don't know, 10, 11 months old or something like that. And like, you can see in her one-year-old picture, there's this little like scab right underneath her eye. I like drew blood. It was not good. I just, there was this wave of remorse and all the rage was gone. <laughs> just in an instant. I saw what I had done and I just realized I am 100% in the wrong. Now I could have like, I could have just doubled down like, that's not my fault, it's your fault, mom, blah, blah, blah. And we do that with God all the time. But I think, and even as I've been thinking about it this week and preparing, I really feel like, like God was just being like, yeah, my, my spirit was helping you in that moment. I was guiding your little four-year-old heart. I was helping you to understand something. And it's the same thing that happens when we come face-to-face -face with Jesus and we face the choice, right? We see Jesus on the cross. We see the beloved son who took the hit for us. And our response, our godly response should be that it's like, man, I am in the wrong. I don't need God to get out of my face. I need God to get into my life. I need God to take over. I need forgiveness. I don't have anything to stand on. And I just, I just remember I, I ran upstairs into my room, into my bed, just sobbing. And I have no idea what happened after that. Because I don't, like, I don't remember any, what, what kind of discipline. I'm sure there was com conversation and discipline and some kind of stuff that happened. But I, do, I don't remember any of it because I just knew in that moment, I deserve everything that's about to come to me. And again, I don't remember the specifics of what happened. But what I do know, just because I know my parents really well, is I know that they were so gracious so merciful. I'm sure they were firm. I'm sure we had a good conversation about it. I maybe had some kind of consequence that happened, like no more books or something like that. That's why I can't read today. Um, <laughs> but I was still a part of the family. 
I was embraced and loved. I guarantee that. And I have a great relationship with my parents today. And I, I was not disowned. I was not cast out into the gutter. And this is exactly what we find in Jesus, right? That we're the ones who perpetrated against him and yet he's there just like, hey, whatever kind of hits you want to throw at me, that's fine. Whatever stuff you want to blame on me, that's fine. But what I want you to know at the end of the day is I love you. I came for you and I'm not going to stop pursuing you. And we could... I mean, go all the way to our grave, kicking and screaming, and Jesus will not give up. He won't. But he still gives us the dignity of choosing. And that's where many of us find ourselves today. So maybe there's some people in the room today where it's like, man, I have, I'm recognizing that I owe God a debt. I am in the wrong. I know that if, if I was to stand before God today, I would not be okay. And the reality is, is that you have a warm welcome in Jesus. (laughs) He's taken the punishment for every wrong that any of us has ever done. We just have to step into it and accept it. He doesn't force us. So for some of us, maybe that's going to be your response this morning. And just want to invite you. There's going to be people up in front, myself and probably some others that would just love to pray with you and and, uh, help you take that step. For those of us who are in the room who are already following Jesus, man, this is like a lifelong thing. And I want to close with this quote from this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is out of his book called um, The Cost of Discipleship. And just, I mean, this is a guy, speaking of Hitler, this is a guy who who was a Christian in the middle of Nazi Germany, like at the the heat of all of the craziness that was, was Nazi Germany. Like he was figuring out how to follow Jesus in the middle of that moment in history. And this is one of his probably most famous quotes, but he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, as a fallen human person, what do I want to do? I want to take, 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 take. And I don't care who I have to steamroll. I don't care who I have. Maybe I'm not actually going to kill somebody because there's legal ramifications, but I'm surely going to manipulate people. I'm surely going to lash out when somebody's not giving me what I want. I'm surely going to use my life and spend my life seeking after a futile pursuit of control. But when Jesus calls a person, he says, hey, follow me. Watch the way that I live my life. I didn't come to take. See, Jesus was God. He had every right to show up and say, what's up, everybody? I'm God. Hit the floor. (laughs) He didn't do that. He said, all right, throw the books. It's just incredible. And this is what a follower of Jesus is called to. And I know for us, I mean, red-blooded American people, right? We love our rights. But man, as a follower of Jesus, I really think that I have no rights. Like when I look at Jesus, the one who laid down his life, that's what I'm called to. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you're called to. 
to pick up your cross every day and follow him. That means when your spouse is just bugging the crap out of you, it's like you just, all right, Jesus, I'm gonna, I need to learn how to die again. Or when things at work are just so bleh, I need to die again. Or when God's asking you to do something really hard, give up something that's very dear and close to you, something that you've found a lot of comfort in and God's like, actually, why don't you give that in me so you can find a better, truer comfort in me? You're like, All right, Jesus, I need your help. Help me to learn how to die again. And so for all of us this morning, again, the, the, the response is the same, although it may look a little different. It's just like, God, I'm not God. And I surrender. My life is yours. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And as we close uh, in prayer, just invite you to um, just kind of see if God brings anything to mind specific for you. There might be something in your life that God is like, hey, you, that thing you're like so anxious about all the time. I want that. <clears throat> or that thing that you think is going to make you so happy. Why don't you give that to me? So let's just pray and we'll see what God brings to mind for us. Jesus, we do invite you um, just to, in the way that only your Holy Spirit can do, just show us if there's anything in us that, that we have taken control of for ourselves, ways that we've tried to be God, things that we've put our hope in that aren't you. And Jesus, we just admit that we, we just need you. We recognize that you are God and we are not. And I pray as we sing this song that we would, again, just put all of our trust in you, all of our hope in you, that we would surrender to you, trusting you as the foundation for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.